Hi, this is Dominic Pace from the new Star Wars series, The Mandalorian, and you're listening to the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. I can bring you in warm, or I can bring you in cold. This podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. There is more knowledge here than anywhere else in the galaxy. Only members of the Jedi Council are allowed access. Guarding the holocrons is one of the most important duties a Jedi can be given. Do you think you're up to the task? Welcome to another episode of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. I'm your host, Rob, and we are recording this episode on Wednesday, November 18th, 2020. Now, before we get started with this week's episode, I do want to give a special shout out to our sponsor for this episode, Clothes by Craig. Uh, In this crazy COVID world we're living in, it's important to have a mask that fits and is comfortable. And certainly, if it can be stylish, that's a huge plus as well. Uh, For me personally, I love to express my adoration of Star Wars wherever I can. And that's where Clothes by Craig came in. Uh, I was looking for some masks for our trip that we just came back from uh, down to the Orlando area, to the Disney parks and Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And as I was hopping around out on Etsy, I ran across this particular shop. He has some really awesome Star Wars masks and uh, was kind enough to even do one for the podcast as well. Uh, And as such, you know, I was able to go down there and wear some masks that were not only comfortable and actually fit me, which has been a difficult task to find something that fits my face properly. But I got a ton of compliments on these masks. So I would definitely encourage you to go out to his shop. And he's located at clothesbycraig.etsy.com. Uh, that's clothesbycraig, K-L-O-T-H-E-S by K-R-A-I-G. So uh, wherever you think there should be a C, it's a K. Uh, definitely check out his shop. I think you're going to find something you love. And uh, definitely let us know if you do get some of these masks, what you think about them. Uh, and let him know that we sent you. So that being said, we're going to go ahead and jump into the episode. All right, we have got a ton to get through in this week's episode, so we're going to get right to it. And uh, to help me along with that, I have once again my good friend and co-pilot Tom Howell from the Hyperion Adventures podcast. Tom, welcome back to the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. Rob, you know I'm always thrilled to join you here in the Jedi Temple Archives, especially for the Jedi Temple Archives podcast, and even more especially to talk about one of the best shows that is currently on Disney+. Plus. Of course, we're here to talk all about the Lego Star Wars holiday special, right? Correct. Oh, wait. No, that's... Yeah, no. 
<laughs> no, oh, we're, we're, we're going to go. I, I don't know how many people have seen the Lego uh, Star Wars Holiday Special yet. I, I do plan on watching it. I'm waiting for my son uh, to get here later this evening. I'm sure he's going to want to check that out with me. But I think we'll uh, we'll kind of take a step back and maybe we'll talk about The Mandalorian Season 2, uh, which we have not had an opportunity to talk about since it dropped uh, due to me being on vacation. Uh, but I think uh, this will this will give us a good chance to kind of address the first three episodes kind of as an arc um and uh and maybe get a little bit more insight into it kind of looking at it across a multi-episode span essentially really enjoyed the the first portion of this season of uh, the mandalorian season two just uh you know i i found every single chapter so far captivating i can't wait for the next one as they keep building on this storyline that we're going through and uh you know all the new worlds we're revisiting all some new characters and some old characters we're revisiting it's really cool yeah and i think that you know especially with uh the mandalorian season one I, it was it was uh, a hit i think we knew it was going to be a hit especially for a long time star wars fans but with the inclusion of the child uh that was something that really brought in a lot of people who maybe had not been big time star wars fans to the point where they would watch a series like this uh and they still seem to be very engaged for season two and i, I think it's a lot of fun uh for us as longtime star wars fans because there is so much detail that they're putting in these episodes uh so many cool little spoilers or not spoilers but you know callbacks to things we've seen before so many hidden uh references and easter eggs and we'll get into that kind of as we start digging through these episodes but uh you know that has been for me one of the the most fun things is to go back and rewatch these episodes multiple times and see if i can pick out all the little things that they slipped into them there are so many, and there there were so many in season one too. If you go and watch uh, Disney Gallery Star Wars: The Mandalorian, they they talk about some things that I may not have even picked up the first time watching through. But you know, after they you know, describe them, watch through you know the fourth, fifth, sixth time of the series of the of the season, um, you see all these little things. But and there's plenty that just some of them that will just slap you right in the face once you watch these episodes and some other ones that, as you rewatch them a couple times you're like oh there's that <laughs> wow i didn't pick that up the first time really cool stuff and, and just it really enjoyable it doesn't surprise me coming from you know dave filoni who you know is so entrenched in in star wars and the lore and is the closest thing right now to you know george himself george lucas himself uh, within this i mean yeah really i think when he speaks it's basically channeling george lucas right through them and then john favreau who's writing a lot of these episodes so far this season and, and is a, a masterful storyteller on his own right yeah he also loves to make callbacks to other films uh and i'm seeing a lot of that already within the first three episodes of season uh two so what we'll do is we'll just kind of go through these i'm not gonna uh, the purpose here is not for us to rehash exactly everything that happened within the episodes i just kind of want to call out some of the stuff that really jumped out to us and some of the references that we saw um and maybe some of where we think that's that's going to head us but um the first uh chapter that came out this season was chapter nine titled the marshal and uh the second i saw that uh you know it, knowing that timothy oliphant was uh going to be cast as uh as a character within the season and so much had been made of the Boba Fett armor. People were picking up little tidbits of that within the trailer uh, for season two. Uh, and as someone who has been familiar with a lot of the the, the books that have come out, uh, kind of in this gap between the end of the Star Wars 
original trilogy films and uh, the beginning of The Mandalorian. Anyone who's read the Aftermath series is going to be familiar with the character of Cobb Vanth. And I thought it was really cool that they brought him into the story. Uh, and yet kind of through the storytelling of episode one, they've created a scenario where that armor is no longer in his hands, uh, where it could potentially find its way back to Boba Fett. Right. It, it did put pieces in place that we could, and if nothing else, that uh, maybe a Boba Fett will be, uh, you know, searching for this armor because he knows it's out there. He doesn't have it anymore. And um, just interesting stuff. I, I love the fact, first of all, when he walks in, and I know we're not recapping everything of the yeah, episode, but yeah. he, he walks into, you know, into, into the uh, cantina there. And he, you know, he's just a little too tall for that armor. I mean, I think Boba Fett must have been a little there to because this armor, you just tell it doesn't quite fit him exactly right. right. You know, that's not his armor right off. Uh, you know, it wasn't Boba Fett right off the bat when he walked in there. You're like, this is whether you knew uh, that of uh, Cobb Vance's existence or not. You could tell uh, this isn't Boba Fett walking in there, but that definitely is the Mandalorian armor that Boba Fett wore. Right. Yeah. I mean, the armor has got that distinct, even, even with him kind of backlit and you're just picking up the silhouette of him. Uh, it's got that very specific look, even in a show where you've seen a number of different suits of Mandalorian armor, but kind of the point that you're talking about with him walking into that cantina, this is another one of those episodes that you really see the spaghetti Western kind of underpinnings that we've talked about previously. You know, the entering of the cantina, the showdown in the cantina, even when Mando is riding into uh, the town there on the on the swoop bike is very reminiscent of, you know, one of these old Westerns where the uh, the gunslingers kind of riding into the into the town uh, and the parallels are unmistakable and they pull it off so well. Yeah, and then you you look at the interactions between uh, the Tuscan Raiders, you know, as yeah. Native Americans, yep. essentially. I mean, it just it totally played like we've discussed it many times throughout uh, the season one of The Mandalorian. It's very much played out like a western, a spaghetti western, a samurai western, however you want to look at it. Yep. Um, this one shouted as about as loudly as any of the episodes so far. Like we are a western right here. There's no question about it. Yeah, I, it is funny. Uh, we get another reference to Spachka, which is. Uh, the drink that uh, the Mandalorian was going to uh, share with Gina Carano there back in season one in, in episode four, the Sanctuary episode. Uh, so we keep hearing Spotchka get mentioned. It's another blue liquid, which seems to be quite popular on Tatooine. Uh, and then, you know, right before there's going to be that big showdown in the cantina, we get introduced to the kind of the main adversary for this episode, which is another amazing Star Wars callback to Legends um, in some ways to some of the old Star Wars video games in the crate dragon uh which you know again i talk about things that are that are these parallels with some of these other films and that one um definitely the way the crate dragon was portrayed in this particular episode it made me think of tremors and it made me think of dune right i get that that totally played up for me too it's matter of fact when um when uh, Mando first pulls into the town there, one of the first things I, I said to my wife, Michelle, is like, all these homes are on stilts. Why are they all on stilts? There has to be something playing up with why they're all there. And then sure enough, you know, just a, a quick couple minutes later, we see exactly why all these homes and all these businesses are on stilts out there mm -hmm. within there. Um, because of the way the, the crate Dragon uh, does move about uh, throughout the, this episode. Yeah, and it's uh, it's funny. We, go, we talk about that swoop bike that he rides into town on. And, you know, we kind of bypassed the whole arrival of the Mandalorian back on Tatooine. Uh, he meets up with Pally and her pit droids there at the uh, 
Mos Eisley spaceport. And of course, we get another cameo from a character that we know all too well from the original Star Wars film, uh, Red or, you know, R5, that was the original mm-hmm. droid that Owen Lars was going to select. And, and he blew that motivator and kind of opened the door for R2 to, to enter the story. And you know, the level of detail that they had in that scene where you could even see the scorch marks and, and the, the marks from where he had blown that motivator before he'd been fixed uh, was just awesome. I know that was totally confirmed by Dave Filoni that that was, in fact, R5 uh, from the original Star Wars film. But, you know, everywhere you look, you're finding these little things that are like, oh, my God, you know, they, they miss no opportunity to drop these little Easter eggs for the longtime fans. Right, and you get out. You got a little glimpse of R five in season uh, one, yep. um, but you could. You it was tough to see the back of him. You know, you can kind of see a glimpse of where that uh, motivator could have popped out and everything, but you didn't. But this one, they're like, we're going to yeah. just go ahead and show you. <laughs> so you know that this is R five here because uh, yeah, that was it was perfect. It was so well done, and uh, yeah, it's just it's not one of those things you're like, oh oh oh, R five, yeah. Yeah, and again, <laughs> what a long way he's come from the beginning of series one or season one when uh, you know he wouldn't even take the taxi that was driven by the droid, and now he's letting him work on his ship, and he's got <laughs> you know droids basically involved in every aspect aspect of his life uh you know clearly this is part of his character development as well right even pally was like you know what what's gone on with you over the last you know several weeks or however long it's been uh since he last visited most Eisley. you know he's like oh you know at first she's like no 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 rights and he's like yeah go ahead let him and she's like whoa change of heart what's changed with you and then you know obviously one of her concerns was like okay well he is he on his own now because you know that she attached herself to the child when dad uh, visited in season one and so she was so happy when the child was there as well right. so that was very very fun moment yeah she's his full-time babysitter uh his go-to choice it would appear so far on the show uh, although as we get into some of these later episodes you know he's again possibly uh you know you have to question what what a great protector i guess he is for the child because he ends up putting him in the most dangerous situations and when he's not he's pawning him off on anyone and everyone around him so uh leaving him him basically in the car with the window right (laughs) right yeah yeah child and family services in the star wars galaxy is probably uh on the lookout for him but uh yeah we'll get into that in a little bit but um you know as we kind of move into this episode a little bit uh one of the other things that totally jumped out at me was the 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 cry of the crate dragon uh that we hear and the fact that that was the exact same sound effect that they used for obi-wan scaring off the tuscans uh in the original episode the original star wars film um another indication of just how on point they are with making sure that they have these callbacks within these episodes. Right. And I believe they even used it. Um, didn't it last season, season one, uh, when they first landed at uh, Mos Eisley. And of course, as we were discussing, you know, Mando went off and, and left the child aboard the ship and he starts to walk out and Pelly's there and she hears the noise. And I believe that was all, it was like the, the child doing a version of the crate dragon call as well. That's crazy. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that because I did not catch that in season one. But uh, again, you know, it doesn't matter how big a fan you are. All the things you catch, there's always going to be those tiny little details that slip by, which is why we have so much fun talking about it. Um, Now, speaking of things that were, you know, it wasn't necessarily in your face, but the swoop bike, the the swoop bike that Cobb Vanth was riding was definitely something we had not seen before. It's basically this giant engine with a seat kind of side mounted on it. Um, 
But it was pretty apparent to me from right on that this was, if not exactly the engine from uh, Anakin Skywalker's pod racer, the exact same type of engine. It's missing kind of one of the intake panels. Um, and it's upside down compared to what you see on Anakin's pod racer. But this is, uh, I think, another one of those just absolute callbacks to episode one, The Phantom Menace. Yeah, and I don't feel like, okay, it could be the same type of engine. It could be, but right. really, I mean, you don't throw that out there right. without it saying, no, look, <laughs> this was Anakin's pod racing, one of, one of the pod racing engines there. You just don't throw that out there because everybody's going to expect it to be anyway because it, it has too familiar a look to it. Right. Um, did you happen to uh, spend any time deciphering the, deciphering the Orabesh underneath the uh, the Death Star hollow? Uh, when King Why would or... I do that when I know you're going to do it for me? <laughs> yeah. need to bother. Uh, Cobb Vanth, as he's kind of retelling his story of how the town was taken over by these raiders, uh, they was they was talking about the fact that they had the image or the footage of the Death First Death Star being blown up by the Rebel Alliance, and kind of underneath that hollow, you've got this Orbesh script rotating, and it actually reads: "Little does Luke know, the Galactic Empire has secretly begun construction on a new armored space station, even more powerful than the first Death Star." So it is based. Basically, the opening crawl from Return of the Jedi right. that they have encoded in Orabesh uh, and have rotating underneath that hollow of the Death Star, which again, hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Love it. I love like, it. You went it. You paused it and went and played it because I didn't have to decipher much of it. Once I got through a little bit of it, I'm like, oh, that's all too familiar. But uh, you know, again, every time I see Orabesh, it's funny because sometimes when you decipher the stuff that they put on the screen, sometimes it's it's exactly what you'd expect, you know, engine failure, hull breach, or whatever the case may be. Um, sometimes they hide other little gems in there, and that was certainly the case at this particular point in time. We we see another appearance of the Cantono. They they've get now officially given it a name, uh, which is essentially that ice cream maker that they've now turned into a safe. So. Um, Apparently that's, that's something we're going to be seeing regularly. And, uh, the scene kind of later in the episode when, uh, Mando is going to, uh, save everyone from the crate dragon and, you know, Cobb Vant is like, what do you want me to do? And Mando, uh, just kind of jabs him in the backpack and, and ignites his backpack, which was a total callback to the Han Solo accidentally doing the same thing to that same jetpack, Right. Um, right. In, uh, in return of the Jedi. So, Again, why they have these activators on these jetpacks that are <laughs> not something that they can control, who knows, but but Mando knew it. He, he, it was it, it, the reaction. It was such a callback because, yeah, the reaction kind of the way he's flailing as he flies away, you know, uncontrolled. From <laughs> right. So much of, of, of Boba Fett, you know, going from the skiff right into uh, um, into uh, um, Jabba's barge, sail barge right. there. It was it was. Perfect. And then onward into the Sarlacc pit. So again, another tie in we get uh, to me. So they're, they're basically claiming in this episode, this crate dragon is living in the former hole of a Sarlacc. Um, but it's essentially in the side of a mountain. So to me, this doesn't read to me as the same Sarlacc that, uh, that Boba Fett fell into. It could be kind of an alternate entrance maybe where it had burrowed in initially. Um, but certainly not that Sarlacc pit opening that we saw within Return of the Jedi. Uh, but it'd be interesting to find out if if there's any 
information that gets given later in the season about whether there was any tie-in to that Sarlacc. Certainly you could argue um, that Cobb Vanth living in uh, this proximity to uh, Moss Pelgo and Boba Fett, who we, who we see at the end of the episode, still being in that general area. It could very well be, um, like I said, you know, another burrow point for that Sarlacc. But uh, yeah, that great dragon coming in and essentially rooting that thing out, um, that would have been kind of a, a fight for the ages, I would think. Yeah, I mean, it could have, whether it was the, the original Star Wars that we see in Return of the Jedi or not, um, it, it could have been that the dragon burrowed from the side and took him from the side as opposed from head on or whatever, you know, and that, that is all part of the the area within where it lived, it would totally make sense. If, yeah. you know, we're partially telling the story of how Boba Fett um, possibly got out of the Sarlacc pit, you yeah. know? So um, we, I, we, I'm sure we will hear more about that as this season progresses. Yeah. And the one thing I will throw in there is that for anyone who has not been to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, I always have to get a plug in for that, especially having just been there uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, one of the great things about Doc Ondar's, which is one of the the shops there within Galaxy's Edge, is he has a small version, uh, basically a baby Sarlacc pit, um, where you see the side cross section. So you can see basically everything that is beneath the sand, uh, which is kind of a a cool little Easter egg, a cool little uh, item, a detail for Star Wars fans, you know, to really get an idea of what that Sarlacc looks like. Um, and again, it, it'll give you a better picture in your mind when you see stuff like this crop up within these shows. Yeah, a lot of stuff, a lot of references, a lot of stuff that uh, you actually can find uh, within Batu when you get the chance or get the chance to revisit uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge at some point for yep. sure. And again, I know you're only uh, a few months away from from going back. We all are. Very excited. Very excited. Yeah, Podcaster Nerd Fest 2021. Yeah. <laughs> Going to have a good time for sure. A whole group of us. I think really the the other main thing, uh, there's two more topics that I really want to get into with the first episode of The Mandalorian or the first chapter for this season. And the, the first is that uh, we see that crate Dragon Pearl that the Tuscans uh, end up kind of harvesting from the corpse of the crate Dragon. For me, I was a little surprised it was bigger than what I was expecting, but I kind of think they did that just to kind of make sure that it was, you know, on scale with the the crate Dragon that was killed. But um, kind of the backstory of what those crate Dragon Pearls are is that those crate Dragons would ingest stones to, you know, to help them with their digestion. And obviously, as we saw within this episode, they have very acidic bile uh, that they were shooting onto the Tuscans and the townspeople and essentially just dissolving them but uh, occasionally they will ingest a stone that actually has a kyber crystal in it and what will happen then is kind of over the the thousands of years that this stone is within its belly it will form into one of these crate dragon pearls and the cool callback there is uh there used to be a star wars galaxies there may still be um multiplayer online video game and one of the things you could get to power your lightsaber was one of these crate dragon pearls um, and they're supposed to produce this incredibly powerful blade. And instead of the hum, it actually has more of a howl. So for a guy named Tom Howell, I would imagine <laughs> that would be of interest right to you. App, every time I wave my lightsaber, howl. That's right. Howl. 
See, I want to, I want to actually hear what one of these things would sound like. Um, but you know, so there is, uh, there's some cool tie-ins to uh, many things in, in Star Wars past. I know it was also something that was talked about within one of the dark saber, uh, novels for, and this is not the dark saber that we're talking about. This is a, an Imperial weapon that was created back in Star Wars legends. But, uh, you know, again, these, these callbacks to a lot of this mythos that surrounds Star Wars in general. Um, and a lot of this is just fun for the hardcore fans while the, you know, the casual fans can still enjoy these episodes on the surface level. Yeah. Um, lots of stuff in there to dive into within this, whether, and again, we've talked about that, you know, part of the things, and I think we're going to talk about this more as we get more to the episode we just watched. But one of the things that I feel that we've seen through these first three episodes of season two of The Mandalorian is, you know, callbacks to so many things we talk about here on the J Temple Archives podcast, so many explorations into things that are, you know, outside of the films themselves, whether it be the books, whether it be the comics, whether it be the animated series and how much that's opening it up. And what's great is it's opening these worlds up to all these people who, um, you know, maybe they're, you know, borderline Star Wars fans. Maybe they've only watched the films. Maybe they're just coming on to it right now. And now they're like, wow, there's so much other stuff out there for us to explore and there we're starting to see them diving into it which is great yeah and that's actually a great reminder because uh i i missed a point that i wanted to get to all the way back at the beginning of the episode with the whole interaction with gore koresh who's an abyssin uh and he's kind of got that cyclops that single eye there are a couple of references to abyssins in the past in star wars one of them was a creature that we saw in the original film in the cantina um and later on within the Clone Wars, there was another Abyssin that played a very important role uh, named Jakar Bomani, who basically his wife had fed these nanobots into him. He was a munitions expert in the Jedi Temple, and his wife uh, essentially turned him into a living bomb, and he was the, the reason for this explosion in the Jedi temple hangar that later got hung on Ahsoka Tano and was one of the things that kind of drove her out of the Jedi order. So with this season being something that's going to focus on Ahsoka Tano, we had certainly had speculation about that in the past. It has been confirmed as, as we will talk about in uh, the most current episode. Uh, it's again, another one of these tiebacks to something that is a very important moment, a pivotal moment within Ahsoka's past. Uh, and there's still kind of sticking these little reminders in for, you know, the folks that have, as, as you said, really dug into some of this other content and are familiar with the clone wars and that, uh, that very important arc within clone wars. Mm -hmm. Not just a pivotal moment for Ahsoka. Yes. I mean, Ahsoka was a huge part of uh, the clone wars and, you know, some would maybe argue that it was more about her than virtually any of the other characters that were within the clone wars. Uh, But it was a pivotal moment for that show itself. It was a pivotal moment for the entire star Wars universe, Mm -hmm. because we we've discussed it many times on the show, you know, what happens if Ahsoka does stay around, does, you know, continued on as Anakin's apprentice, you know, how does that change his storyline as we move forward? And so, yeah, that's, that is a big, 
crux moment within the Clone Wars for sure. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, and then, you know, the, the final thing I think we'll talk about with regards to this first chapter of the Mandalorian for season two is the appearance of, uh, what, who, who appears to be Boba Fett at the end of this episode, uh, in his Tuscan Raider garb. Um, you know, he's got the gaffy stick and the long rifle on his back. And as he turns and, and walks away, uh, from watching the Mando, you know, drive off on his swoop bike with his gear in tow, his face, you know, it's, it's fairly dark, but you definitely can see some scarring on his face, which would definitely, uh, mesh with what we saw with his armor that had clearly taken some damage within the, the maw of that Sarlacc. Mm -hmm. If you're wondering about if you, if you haven't delved much into this as to why we pretty much pinpointed it, that is probably Boba Fett there is because that actor that played that part within it was Tamara Morrison, who also played Django Fett, uh, within the, of course, uh, Attack of the Clones. So, you know, theoretically, because the clones are all, well, he was also all the clones, but right. uh, because the clones formed out of Django Fett, um, because Boba Fett was a an, al an, an altered clone of Django Fett, uh, logic says, even though we never saw Boba Fett technically uh, within the original trilogy without his mask off, uh, the thought is that that is almost certainly Boba Fett there out in the, the desert that we saw at the end of episode uh, uh, chapter nine. Yeah. And we'll get in trouble if I don't make this clarification. So he is absolutely Tamara Morrison is the clones within the live action episodes. Mm -hmm. uh, D Bradley Baker voices them in all the animated uh, content. And we will get to him in just a little bit because he has tie-ins to these episodes as well. Uh, but uh, Pat, we had to make that we had to make that clarification. <laughs> I'd be getting texts immediately if I didn't. All right. Right. <laughs> right. So uh yeah, I definitely he didn't like to text you at all ever. No. <laughs> you're talking about. No, he is the first person to be like, hey, don't disrespect my voice actors. So that's right. Definitely. The the gentleman over a conversation. So um that pretty much will wrap it for the first episode. Hopefully uh, you got some additional information maybe you were not aware of there. And from that, we will go ahead and dovetail right into chapter 10, which is uh, titled The Passenger. And it really picks up right after the end of uh, the Marshall episode. Right. Uh, you know, he's been... He's, he's traveling back uh, across the desert again in that uh, speeder bike, uh, you know, trying to get back to the you know, ship with the, the armor and everything, and then uh, runs into a little bit of an issue there uh, immediately. Yeah, so clearly, uh, well, two things about that opening scene. The first is that there is a, a definite parallel between that opening shot with the opening shot of Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, kind of a, going across the desert. So uh, I that was not my assessment. Uh, I did pick that up from seeing some other things. But uh, again, it's just another homage to filmmaking in general. And that is exactly what we expect to see out of John Favreau. Uh, but, you know, clearly they are laying out the fact that not all is, is happy and, and fun for the Mando right now. There are still uh, operatives out there, bounty hunters out there that are trying to track down the child and, and claim that bounty, whether they're coming Coming from uh, Grief Karga's guild, which I think we know at this point that they're not, but uh, Gideon certainly still has an interest in this child and he is willing to pay for someone to bring him in. Gideon, we definitely know, was one of the ones that was looking for him, but there seems to be like there's somebody else out there that was looking for him too, because remember, uh, Mandalorian and IG-11 got different orders right. onto how to approach him in, in 
chapter one of this, you know, and one, you know, IG 11 was just supposed to kill him. Whereas right. the Mandalorian was supposed to try and bring him back alive, although he could kill him, but that was not exactly what the order was. So whether this is all coming from off Gideon, I'm not sure. Is there somebody else that's looking for the child as well? So these orders could be coming from a couple different locations possibly. Yep. I completely agree. Uh, you know, Mando, obviously, he has this swoop bike essentially destroyed. Uh, they clothesline him right off the swoop bike. And again, clearly uh, the child and Mando himself can can take a punch, so to speak. Uh, the child looks so fragile, but there's been so many times he's been dropped or, you know, knocked off of something. And uh, clearly he, he can kind of take a little bit of punishment. Um, but as Mando comes back into Moss Eisley and uh, heads to the cantina to meet up with Pelly, uh, we get another visit from the new droid bartender, uh, which is EV9D9. And the cool thing about him in this episode was that he was actually voiced by Mark Hamill. So more lines from Mark Hamill in this episode than in all of The Force Awakens. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, that, there's not much they have to do, though. Right. I do exactly. say hot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, that that EV-99 uh, is a, is another great callback to uh, basically that torture droid from Jabba's Palace in Return of the Jedi. So, again, they're not uh, not shy about reusing characters in different roles um, and any anything in a cantina. Uh, anyone who's visited, again, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge and gotten a chance to hang out at Oga's Cantina, um, droids in the cantina are, are kind of a staple in this day and age. Yeah, even though they, you know, when they didn't serve those their kind back in the day, apparently right. that is much changed. They're much more woke as far as droid uh, rights are at, at this point in the Star Wars universe. Right. There was uh, there's another kind of uh, cool call out within that cantina scene. Obviously, now we've got Peli who's sitting in Han Solo's spot in his uh, in his old booth, uh, and she's playing Sabak against this giant ant, um, which. To me, I think this is an homage to the fact that the director from this episode was Peyton Reed, uh, who was the same director, uh, writer and director from uh, Marvel's Ant-Man films. Um, so there's a cool call in there. I kind of I didn't read it as an ant when I first saw it. I guess my Star Wars brain identified it more as one of the Killicks, um, which is, again, another Legends creature. Um and then, you know, uh, Pally ends up winning that with an idiot's array, which is a, a hand that uh, Lando is quite fond of and that we see within Star Wars Rebels. Really it, just cool to see Pally. She's a pretty good poker player or <laughs> Sabak poker Sabak, you know, same Star Wars poker. Um, but just fun to see. And not only that, she was able to coerce some extra cash out of it because Dr. Mandible didn't have it. But right. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's really to to put up the call there for him. Yeah, and then yeah, and then she takes it. Uh, apparently, it takes a lot of money to uh, to keep a, a space perm like the one that she's got uh, in, in good shape. By the way, Pelly has become one of my wife Michelle's favorite characters, and she's so afraid that of what could because she's starting to be really tied in with yeah. uh, with with there uh, with Mando that it could be come to an issue at some point and she's like no I cannot I already I already lost Quill I already lost IG11 <laughs> please have nothing happened to Pelly okay <laughs> yeah it's funny because uh, Amy Sedaris who plays her um, I was not like a huge fan of Pelly's first appearance in season one uh, 
I don't know, it just came off as abrasive to me, but I went back and rewatched that episode before season two started. We kind of did a rewatch of the entire thing. She didn't bother me as much the second time through, and now she's actually starting to grow on me as a character. Um, you know, she just kind of is who she is, but you know, she's, you can tell she's getting more comfortable playing that character um, and bringing something to it. So I'm not surprised that uh, Michelle certainly is, is, uh, you know, kind of connecting with her a little bit. Plus she doesn't look like she's very tall. So. Right. So he's right. <laughs> Michelle's like, I, you know, I can think I could cosplay as her at some point. <laughs> right. At the same height, a little it's, bit of grit. Yet still, you know, a loving mother at some points when needs to be. And it's, it's kind not of just, that. it's not just Jawas and droids anymore. She, uh, she's got real life characters to cosplay as. <laughs> right. Exactly. Plus she likes, she likes her crate dragon medium rare, just like Pelly does, you know? Right. Well, and again, there, there's another great callback to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, right? Cooking, uh, cooking the meat right. on, on a pod engine, essentially, which is exactly what they do in Galaxy's Edge at Rano Roasters, which again, that is one of the best food items you can get in Galaxy's Edge. I highly recommend it. Definitely a staple every time we go, but it's, it's funny that they're even pulling Galaxy's Edge call-ins into some of these episodes. Yeah, a lot of fun in throughout it, and again, they're just they're they're delving into every little aspect of the Star Wars universe within this. Like I mentioned before, the books, the comics, um, the movies, of course, but then also the animated shows, and now, yes, the the actual attractions and lands within, uh, you know within Disney parks. Right. Yep. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, D Bradley Baker, who, who was the uh, voice of all of the clone troops within the animated series, uh, does end up making, uh, not an appearance, but he makes a, a show, uh, in this episode as the voice of frog lady, which again, one of the most creatively named characters ever. And the person that did the motion capture or the, the acting the body acting for that character was Misty Rosas, who did the motion capture for Queel uh, within season one of The Mandalorian. So again, they're very loyal to the the folks that have partaken in, in these episodes, uh, definitely finding places, not just for people who had spots within season one of The Mandalorian, but you know, generally just tied in within Star Wars altogether. Uh, D. Bradley Baker clearly um, is someone who a lot of people who watch the animated series would connect with. He he had the challenge of taking all these characters that look exactly the same or generally the same uh, and giving them all a very different personality using nothing but his voice. So uh, I think that was, uh, you know, the, no small task and he did it incredibly well. Yeah. As a single voice actor, he, um, you know, and I'm, I, I'm just assuming I haven't actually done the word count on this, but he had to have spoken more lines within the Clone Wars than any other character within it just oh. because of the, and he played so many of them. Yeah. I, I would think that'd probably be, uh, that's your new assignment. Um, the next, <laughs> yeah, the next episode, you can come back with the, <laughs> <laughs> there were also some other great, uh, cameos in this episode. Uh, Dave Filoni, who is now apparently a full-time X-Wing pilot for the new Republic, uh, in his role as Trapper Wolf, which anyone who knows Dave Filoni and his love of wolves is not going to be shocked by that in the least. Um, so, you know, him showing up as an X-Wing pilot and basically pulling uh, the Mando's bacon off the fire uh, in the in the spider cave. And let's talk about those ice spiders. Um, those those were pretty incredible as well. Yeah, and uh, something we've also seen, and also another callback to an animated series that that we love 
very much yep. out of Star Wars Rebels. Yep. Um, and I don't know if I, I, I haven't seen it confirmed. Are those the exact same spiders or are they similar species? Because it's a totally different planet that they, they're on. Yeah, in um, they were on Adalon in Star Wars Rebels and they were called the Krikna. Um, they're slightly different. The one that we see uh, in this episode, they're actually uh, basically an exact draw from the Nobby White spiders that were uh, some concept art that Ralph Quarry had done for Empire Strikes Back, um, and it's got that kind of uh, proboscis, you know, that the mouth that it uses to lay the eggs, and so it's it's a little bit different. The the Krikna just kind of had more of a normal mouth, um, but they're definitely very closely related. I'm sure that was some of the inspiration for what they did within Star Wars Rebels. Very similar um, abdomen, kind of an elongated abdomen yep. um, to them, and I think they only had six legs, which I think they was yeah. the same thing that they. Uh, within Rebels as well. They were very, they, as soon as I saw them, I'm like, oh, those are them. But then as I was looking at it more, I'm like, they look slightly different. I'm not sure if they're exactly the same, but they're definitely related in some yeah. way. No, and I mean, this is another one of those uh, kind of parallels that we see all of the spider eggs within that cave definitely gave off a very alien or aliens vibe um, with kind of the face hugger eggs. Uh, and even, you know, the spider itself and the fact that it would typically lay these eggs through this proboscis like mouth or whatever, uh, which is just an interesting idea in the first place. But, uh, clearly it all leads to one thing, which is the fact that this is a, an all you can eat buffet for uh, baby Yoda. <laughs> just like the egg canister. Din, would you, would you feed the kid? He's always hungry. Please. He's eating eggs he's eating spiders you know give him a, you know a good ham sandwich okay come on <laughs> well and it's interesting right because episode chapter nine episode one of season two uh was pretty generally i think adored by most fans it, it was it was a lot of action it was a lot of character development there was a lot of cool things going on the last two episodes there has been a gate involved with both of them and this one was that gate because the child is essentially eating its way through the, uh, the offspring of frog lady and, and the line that she is trying to, to continue. Um, my argument there is he's force sensitive. He's only eating the eggs that he knows can't be fertilized. <laughs> well, there you go. So that's it. So my thing is like, you know, I had eggs the other day. Um, was somebody knocking down my door and saying <laughs> I was trying to commit genocide. Don't I, start, know, I, don't start or they will. <laughs> All right, I'll be quiet. That's right. Uh, no, uh, and again, uh, I would say this episode certainly, if you're if you're uh, prone to arachnophobia, this is going to be a tough episode to watch. But I thought they did a great job of of establishing a lot of suspense with the spiders. I mean, I think even if you're not afraid of spiders, it is kind of a creepy thing to have a cave full of spiders uh, chasing after you. Shout out uh, Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets. <laughs> right. Uh, when we first watched it, I was like, oh my goodness, it almost looks, is there going to be like this possessed car that's going to come and help save us? So, you know, help save Mandalorian from out of there. That's chapter it four. Looked, uh, <laughs> yeah. chapter, right. chapter 12. I have to keep it. I have to keep it all straight. There um, we go. Uh, that was the callback for it. It was just, yeah. it was really interesting. Yeah. And just when you think that he's going to be safe, they get it, they get to the razor crest, start taking off and then you get, you know, mama spider, uh, <laughs> basically crashing through the roof. Um, 
there were a lot, there were some people that had caught in some of the previews for this, that there were definitely spider legs draped over the ship when he was trying to repair it. Um, he does get saved by, uh, again, the two X-wing pilots, the new Republic X-wing pilots that he was trying to escape from at the beginning. Although they refused to help him repair his ship, which I thought was funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they, they, they spared him. Like they could have, you know, arrested him right there, right. you know, because the, the reason they were, you know, concerned with him is because of the fact that he had broken in uh, to that prison ship, you know, in, in season one. And they, but they, they're like, yeah, but you also, we, you, you help one guy broke at, break out, but she also gave us three people, you know, that were with you there. And then we let us, <laughs> let us to yeah. the station where the other guy was so we could destroy that. Right. Yeah. yeah. No. So um, he's the good like, Samaritan. Okay. We'll let you go this time, but watch yourself. Right, right. Um, I did think it was funny that the uh, the blaster rifles that they were using to basically pick the spiders off the ship were the uh, the A two eighty blaster rifles that we see the Rebel troops in uh, Empire Strikes Back holding, kind of in the trenches. Um, anyone who plays Star Wars Battlefront uh, or Battlefront Two is going to be familiar with those as well. So again, more of these uh, tie-ins to things that we've seen before. But ultimately, what we end up with is uh, the result of this whole caper essentially side mission that they're on uh is this beaten up version of the razor crest that we saw from the original trailer that we were like what the heck happened to his ship um why it looks like it was flying derelict through space but um that kind of dovetails perfectly into our chapter 11 uh conversation with uh the title the heiress which that title alone and then there was a post by katie sackoff out on twitter uh basically asking if it was friday yet (laughs) <laughs> kind of uh kind of tipped the hat a little bit that we were going to be getting the reveal of uh a clone wars and star wars rebels favorite yeah um which was really exciting my tip off was i had charles at the conversations <laughs> podcast accidentally yeah, totally unintentionally you know g- give me the, the spoiler it's my fault for not watching the the show as early as i normally would have but uh yeah i was like oh okay we're going to see Bo-Katan in this episode and I couldn't have been more excited about it. Yeah. And it didn't, Charles, I know if you're, you're listening out there, don't worry about it. It's okay, <laughs> man. It's all good. So even though Rob had me crying in a corner somewhere, because I, heard, <laughs> I think we were oh, trying to line up an extra I, round of drinks for, back. yeah, we were lining up an extra round of drinks for the February trip. So it was all for the greater good. Yep. For the children. For the children. Well, none of the children yeah. are going to be joining us for drinks, but uh, yeah. They can't drink, so we have to for them. That's right. We're, we're, we're taking the hit for him. Um, no, and Charles is like the last person that would ever spoil anything. It was my fault. I, I started this conversation in, uh, in a three-way, uh, text chat. So, uh, he, I think he wasn't even thinking of, of the fact that Tom may not have seen it. Uh, but you know, certainly that, that rectified itself that evening. Uh, you got a chance to see it with your wife who you were kind of waiting for to get home from work. And right off the bat, we, uh, we get launched into what at this point has been the shortest episode of the season. And frankly, I'm a little bit surprised. I thought that with season one, a certain amount of their budget was getting tied up in the creation of the volume, which is this incredible soundstage where they shoot most of these scenes on, Um, and that was clearly, you know, something that was eating up a lot of their, their season one budget. I was hoping with season two that we may get more consistently longer episodes, at least, you know, the length that you would expect an hour long show, uh, to be, if it were with commercials, you know, that 45 minute time frame. this episode was 
very short. I, I think it was a little over a half hour, um, but they certainly packed a lot of action and a lot of detail into it uh, and left us in a place where I think going into the next chapter, uh, which is going to be out in just a couple of days, I think, you know, we're headed in a very interesting direction. Uh, it was short, you know, shorter than what the two episodes prior to it this season have been. However, I kind of felt like they got to that natural stopping point where yeah. it had to be, or you start moving into the next chapter. You either need to stop here or extend it for like another 40 minutes because you're going to be telling a longer story. I think that what was completed within that 35 minutes, yes, like you said, Rob, it packed a lot in it, but I felt like it, it wrapped it up in a little bow or at least, you know, tentatively into a bow yeah. for now. And there'll be more story that comes from this much later on for sure. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, right off the bat, we've got the Razor Crest uh, finally uh, arriving on the planet of Trask where he was supposed to deliver Frog Lady to Frog Man. Of course, if Frog Lady <laughs> is going to be the character, her husband's going to be Frog Man. Um, yeah. <laughs> again, these are the names right out of the credits. <laughs> right so uh they will eventually have uh frog tadpole <laughs> frog baby as he's trying to land the razor crest which is certainly very beat up and, and he's got it all lined up and it's going to hit the landing pad no problem engine failure and again a sound effect right out of empire strikes back the engine failure sounds from the millennium falcon uh as the razor crest kind of lurches to the side and plunges into the ocean only to be retrieved by uh, one of Tom's favorite vehicles in all of Star Wars, uh, repurposed as a crane. Yes, an AT-AT or an AT-AT, which depending on how you prefer them be called, depending on who you are in the Star Wars right. fandom. <laughs> yeah, if you want to start a fight. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, there, there are many ways to start a fight within the Star Wars fandom, unfortunately, nowadays. But just right. whether you call it AT-AT or an AT-AT could be uh, simple with that. By the way, when the Razor Crest lands, or it begins to land, you know, you're watching it and you're like, Oh, is it going to make it? It seems like it's landed. And then it just falls over. Right. I, I just got laughing. I just thought it was just so funny because of he's fought so hard to make it. It looked like he had this perfect landing that oops. Nope. <laughs> I will say this, this is being established is possibly even more so than the millennium Falcon, the ship that has had to be repaired the most in the star Wars universe. This thing gets torn to pieces regularly. Uh, so uh, I hope he's got a good, uh, you know, a good, a line of credit or a good uh, account full of credits uh, because every time I turn around, he's having to have this ship put back together. Well, I think, you know, thank goodness it's like this older ship because you know how like new cars, like right. if you were to go in garage and try and work on your new car that you just recently got. I mean, there's just so much stuff to it. You can have a chance, but if you get a car from out of like the fifties, you know, you can kind of, you might be able to tinker with it a little bit. If you have a little bit of car knowledge, that's probably what the razor crest is like, okay, you know, it's kind of this older style. I can tinker with this, you know, it's not a Nubian you know, or something. I, I will say that the, the, uh, Mon Calamari that he engages on the dock there about repairing the ship was important to me for one specific reason and i think this is the first appearance in all of star wars of a cable knit sweater <laughs> i thought that was like the most ridiculous thing out of the entire episode well, come on i mean he's, he's, it's it's a seafaring sweater of course he you know someone who is there working on the you know the the seaport is going to you know, it's a little chilly out there i mean look at it it's wet it's, it's rainy it's, you need a sweater yep uh and then you know we also had 
speculated early on when we were watching the trailer, you see um, a woman in a in a hood kind of between a couple of cargo crates uh, as he is in this port area. Uh, and we had kind of, there was some conjecture that that was going to be Sabine Wren making her appearance in this season. As it turns out, that was not the case. It was Sasha Banks, um, who actually was credited in this episode under her given name of Mercedes Vernado. And she is playing a character called Costco Reeves, who we find out has some ties to Bo-Katan and the Night Owls. Right, uh, which we've discussed uh, at length uh, not that long ago. Just right. a couple months ago, we were, we were talking about Bo-Katan and the Night Owls when we were talking about um, Clone Wars Season 7. I right. think that's when that brought that discussion about because uh, we were going into the final episodes of that and Bo-Katan played a, a key role within that. And, um, yeah, you know, so, you know, interesting to revisit that. And, you know, that's, it plays a huge part of with Bo-Katan being within this episode. And, um, by the way, I mean, uh, Bo-Katan making a reappearance, it was just, it was just so wonderful to see. And again, we, how many, since the beginning of your show, Rob, how many times have we been talking about, people going back and watching the clone wars <laughs> watching rebels you know we basically did it it seemed like on a weekly basis where there was always this some spot it didn't matter what we were talking about we were going to reference the fact that if you haven't gone and seen yeah. the clone wars go back and watch it and now we're finally seeing it in live action and i knew we had some um some teases of this going to happen in season two of the mandalorian but to actually have it happen and then to see people uh, on social media and online and everywhere um, starting to delve into some of yeah. these, <clears throat> I mean, some of these shows that we've been um, touting for so long, um, it, it just it, it felt fulfilling to me personally. I'm sure you felt the same way. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. You know, certainly I. I was one of the people who thought it was going to be Sabine kind of in hindsight. I'm not surprised that it's not because as you point out, uh, if you go back uh, to the previous episode of Jedi Temple Archives podcast, where we talked about uh, Bo-Katan and the night owls that was tied to uh, season seven of the clone wars. And right within that particular season, there is an arc where they are kind of, uh, Bo-Katan and uh, Sabine Wren's mother, Ursa Wren, uh, who were both members of the Night Owls and, and one of their other uh, members of the Night Owls were cloaked and watching Ahsoka Tano kind of uh, determining whether they could trust her, whether they could approach her uh, to kind of recruit her in breaking the siege of Mandalore that was going on at that particular point in time. So the Night Owls have this, you know, kind of tendency of being cloaked and uh, scoping things out to try to determine if, you know, the situation is right for them to move in and, and make contact. So uh, the way that that character was portrayed, um, you know, if I was really thinking it through, that would have been far more uh, of an indication that she's tied to the night owls than, than potentially being Sabine, who was kind of off on her own. And the other thing that jumps out at me is as part of this whole uh, portion of the episode where they're in the dock area um, or the port area of Trask is that clearly we are establishing that the Quarren are a bunch of uh, scum and villains because right. they are they are absolutely there's no redeeming quality that I have yet seen to be shown with any of the Quarren uh, you know we've we've had Mando be betrayed by them in the past we know that within you know past uh, episodes uh, in the cantina in the very first episode they're always with these groups of thugs and uh, bullies and once again you know Mando gets sent 
off with this group of of these Quarren uh, to supposedly go and find these other Mandalorians that uh, exist on the planet. And he is again betrayed, um, just, you know, ongoing by now. He should know, don't trust the Quarren. Right. And that's the thing is that we, we, we've seen it through, you know, yes, we've seen it within the Mandalorian, but we've seen it all the way back to the Clone Wars and um, several other, uh, you know, viewings of the Quarren when they show up and they, they don't really have anything good to do to say, no. you know, they're, they're, they're always working on what seems like it should is the wrong side and working in a devious manner. Yeah. And that, I mean, it's so, it was actually a little surprising that, you know, I know he needs to, you know, hope for the best in this. And maybe these are the Quarren that are the good ones, you know, that will lead me to these other Mandalorians that have been apparently seen uh, somewhere on this planet. Um, But you think he would have had his guard up a little bit more for him to let this happen aboard that little, that, that fishing troll or whatever it was. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, before we even talk about the, the scene on the fishing trawler, uh, I did have to laugh in the, in the, once again, in the cantina, uh, where he ends up ordering the bowl of chowder for, for the child, um, a, you know, this idea of just pulling a tube out of the ceiling and, and dumping this guap in the bowl, dumping this goop in a bowl. Uh, it reminded me a lot. <laughs> right. No, it was, uh, it reminded me a lot of the, the scene from the matrix where, you know, the, the bowl of, you know, protein based single cell, whatever tasty wheat, um, and then all of a sudden you get the the squid that jumps out and grabs baby Yoda's face. Another callback to the face huggers and aliens. Uh, so again, just, just within like this three, four minute scene, they pack so much stuff in there. Uh, don't play with your food, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so good. Um, just, you know, and then the Mon Calamari there, you know, they're so nice about everything. And Oh, bringing back the, the Mon Calamari flan yeah. uh, to pay for, everything there you know which was a tie back to i think it was uh was it was chapter three i think of uh when he goes back and sees griff and gets paid for it and you know, you know, you know yep. I, I can't take imperial credits you know that's no good anymore well i can pay you half on calamari flan and like okay i'll take that and he so, spread you know, those around a little bit uh through a few of the episodes so yeah clearly uh they're they're still making those callbacks to even uh previous episodes of the, the mandalorian itself but um you know obviously when we get on that fishing trawler and uh the quarren betray mando and uh kick baby yoda into the mama core which again this is a, a brand new creature i'd love to know the uh, genesis of that particular name and then Mando dives in after him and essentially gets trapped by these Quarren. We finally get the first appearance of Bo-Katan and, uh, and her night owls within this episode in full Mando glory coming in and taking out the Quarren. Um, and there is the scene where, uh, you know, Bo-Katan reaches out her hand to pull him out of that pool of water that the Mama Corps had been in. And uh, it was like, an exact mimic of the death watch member reaching out his hand to din when he was a child in that bunker. Right. And I, and it was definitely, um, it, it wasn't a coincidence that right. that was done that way. Um, and you know, just such an interesting scene, but, uh, cheering when they came in, in our household anyway, um, because it was just so exciting to see them show up. And then we go on from there and, 
you know, they take off their helmets and, uh, you know, we've discussed this before, like, you know, that wasn't a thing for Mandalorians back in the day. Why does Mando, why will he never take off his helmet? Why do they say he can't take off his helmet? Because that has never a thing. Uh, we find out a little bit more about, it, but I think it was funny because it, this was again a, a callback to uh, Chapter Nine w- when Cobb Vance takes off his helmet. Yeah. That's when Mando knows right. Where did off you the get bat, that well, armor? Yeah, yeah, he, and he asks the same thing right. of you know, of the Night Owls and Bo Katan, and of course they're they're like, what? You know, we are from Mandalore. Right. I'm an heiress of Mandalore. I'm a lady of. Yeah. Well, don't ask me why I'm taking off my helmet, you know? Yeah. And she understands pretty quickly, uh, you know, where, what his origin story is, uh, that he is associated with, uh, death watch because she was actually part of death watch. If you go back and once again, like I said, listen to that episode that we did on Bo-Katan and the night owls. I mean, it, she is very closely tied to death watch. She split off from them, ended up, you know, saving the planet of Mandalore after her sister, who was the duchess and, and the ruler of that planet was murdered by Maul and so she you know at the time uh you know when we see her in Clone Wars she's very hesitant about being a leader for her people but clearly she has come into that she has now accepted the responsibility of trying to pull Mandalore together and and retaking their home world um which Din has clearly or the you know the Mandalorian as most people know him uh believes is a planet that you know anyone who goes there dies that you know it is is a planet that whether it's been where, whether he thinks it's been scorched or whether he thinks that I don't think that he really believes at this point that the, the imps are going to, or the Imperials are going to uh, kill him because they're essentially on the run. Now I haven't been driven out by the new Republic, but uh, clearly there is some backstory there where there's, been talk among death watch um or the you know the ch- the children of the watch i believe she calls him um that uh you know they can no longer go back to their their home planet right uh, also interesting you know i mean you know talking about death watch back in the clone wars and um they took off their helmets there so yeah. i don't know when the change took place at that point she says it, that it, it was something that they're trying to go back to the old way which yes death watch was very much about uh being more of the warrior mandalorian yeah. you know and going back to their old style of that but they took off their helmets a lot so i don't know when that change took place uh child of the watch uh, you know we consider we thought about this for a while that uh mando may be part of a religion that kind of while they're not true mandalorians from the planet Mandalore that they kind of follow the way of the Mandalorian, or at least what they assume the way of the Mandalorian is. And obviously this as what's come from Bo-Katan. Yeah. Uh, this is something that actually came from some members of death watch. Now mm-hmm. there has to be a little bit more backstory behind that there as well. And I'm interested to find that out, but yeah. you know, all so much stuff about Mandalore. We don't know what's happened. Last time we saw Mandalore, we were in star Wars rebels and that was with the dark saber. And that was, um, Sabine Wren handing the dark saber to Bo-Katan to, as the, the person who should be, uh, ruling the, the planet and trying to pull it all together. Yeah. Um, so what has happened between that time and now uh, to, you know, obviously there was the some sort of purge, some sort of issues that went on there. I'm, I'm excited to find out and explore what happened during that, uh, you know, several year period. Yeah. And I mean, clearly, you know, one of the things that Bo-Katan says to Mandalorian there on that freighter, or on that uh, trawler is that, um, you know, 
she's trying to reunite Mandalorians so that they can return to Mandalore. And the interesting thing about the Night Owls was they were an all-female group. And here we have a male included with her and Cosca Reeves, um, who went by the name of Axe Wolves in this episode. Uh, and he clearly has armor that is very much styled after the Night Owls, same color uh, scheme as well. It is interesting, though. Uh, one of the things that I noticed was that uh, the female Mandalorians, and I don't, I'm not going to get it. Gonna, I am not going to get into Armorgate <laughs> because I think it's ridiculous. But the yeah. ironic thing is, is that uh, you know when we see Boba Fett in the original Star Wars films. He doesn't have the thigh protection. He doesn't have basically the greaves, the the shin protection. He just has essentially, you know, armor over his knees. And um, we see that only with the female Mandalorians in this episode. Uh, the male Mandalorians do have the full leg armor. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, it would kind of go back to the, the argument about whether Boba Fett was truly a Mandalorian or not, or whether he was just using a set of armor that he essentially inherited from Jango Fett, um, which was a pieced together set of Mandalorian armor. It may very well be that that's the tie-in um, with that where, you know, clearly his his upper body armor was very much in keeping with what we see from the Mando, uh, but he didn't have like a full set of lower body armor. Uh, you know, when I saw you mention that, and I actually, because I went down the rabbit hole of going back to watching some of the Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels episodes this week of, um, you know, of exploring a lot of the Mandalorian, um, the, the episodes that revolved around Mandalore. And um, I actually didn't see a lot of the male, uh, they, they seemed like their armors were very similar between the females and the male armor as you went back okay. and watched them later. Now, what uh, what Din is wearing, what Mando is wearing um, is slightly different. He does have those thigh type um, yeah. guards there, whatever, and that may be a, a, an upgrade, something that they've done differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't seem that much difference. When instead of what they had on there, they had like some gun holsters that, um, partially covered their thighs within uh, the Clone Wars and within Rebels. Um, But they were similar to both the male and female. So again, I don't know if that's a fact or not, but it is interesting to look back and and see if that is a a tie-in in some way. Yeah. Then again, this is if anyone wants to know what what hardcore Star Wars nerds do in their free time, this is it. <laughs> we, we translate Orabet, we stop screens and translate Orabet, <laughs> and we go look at, at thigh armor on various different uh, Mandalorians. Who said I had to stop the screen? I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. It, so, so there is another uh, awesome tie-in shortly thereafter. Uh, you know. Bo-Katan knows uh, the location of someone who's tied to the Jedi Order. Uh, those of us who are more familiar with the storyline know that's going to be um, Ahsoka Tano. But uh, she does require something of the Mandalorian in order for her to share that information with him. And that is to help them on this this raid to get some weaponry uh, to help them in kind of their quest to retake Mandalore. And uh, we get to see this Imperial Gazanti class cruiser, which, again, we've seen a number of times previously within Star Wars. Um, it's a it's a pretty specific uh, vessel. And, uh, you know, that whole raid, uh, kind of like you said, I mean, this was the perfect wrap up. Uh, point at the 30 plus minutes in uh, because really that raid was the finale of the episode Um, and uh, you know once again we get to see what a group of of well-equipped and well-trained Mandalorians can do against soldiers of the Empire. Well I thought it was interesting when you watch that uh, that raid on the ship to begin with you know you've seen Din uh, Mando fight out there and he's seems like he's obviously 
very often the the best warrior mm-hmm. at any time he walks into any of these. But he gets on there and he sees these 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 actual Mandalorians who have been doing this for decades now, and he's like it almost looks like he's taken aback at how good they are at fighting. He's not used to not being the best right. fighter within the room. And so it takes him a second as he's, as they're rushing through these different corridors and, you know, to almost play catch up with them, you know, and then show off what he can do as well. Right. And, you know, so he's impressed by them and obviously the things he did uh, impressed Bo-Katan and the, the rest of the group as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. We end up, uh, we have a couple of funny moments within that. Certainly one with the, uh, the Imperial officer locking himself and the troopers in the, uh, in the cargo bay, but he, he shuts uh, the Mandalorian group into the cargo control unit. So uh, again, when you talk about the hapless Imperials um, and how ineffective some of their officers could be, that was pretty much a classic example of that. Um, Despite the, I mean, we also get the reference earlier in the episode by Axe Woves about how, you know, they couldn't hit the broadside of a Bantha. Um, Right. So, you know, I know, uh, I know we have uh, Imperial sympathizers out there who don't like the fact that the imps are so ineffective with their blasters, but they certainly don't do much to, uh, to change that image of them within this episode. But we do get uh, the Imperial officer on the bridge who uh, ends up, you know, once the ship's been taken over and, uh, and Bo-Katan's basically got a knife to his throat and telling him what she's there for uh, and that she'll let him live if he gives it to her. Uh, you know, he, he clearly knows Moff Gideon well enough to know that her letting him live is, is no gift for him. Right. And so he takes the old uh, poison pill hidden in the tooth, essentially. <laughs> Oh, like James Bond thing that we've seen in the past, which I thought was pretty funny. That yeah. seems like it was more of an electric current, but still, it was the same uh, general thought process going on there. That uh, that's it. I'm not going to make it out of this. Yeah, he was ready to, you know, crash the ship right into the takeover and yeah. crash the ship right into the ocean, and you know, basically uh, Kamikaze had commit suicide on in that regard to to save it. He knew he was done. Yeah. There was no way he was. Getting that situation yeah uh and you know ironically we end up with uh you know bo-katan's ultimate goal with him was trying to figure out who had the dark saber which again goes back to the conversation that we had earlier uh the last we knew she was on the planet mandalore she had the dark saber in her possession uh we know there's been a purge on mandalore we know gideon is now the holder of the dark saber i think you know one of the plot lines we're going to see within these remaining episodes uh, is going to be about how that came into his possession. And certainly bo getting it back is going to be crucial to her being able to unify uh, all remaining Mandalorians. Uh, but it also seems uh, at the end of the episode, like up until this point, you know, this is the way was a defensive thing that Din was saying to kind of uh, drive home the point that his approach to being a Mandalorian was correct, not taking off the helmet. Um, and there's an exchange of this is the way between Bo-Katan and Din at the end of the episode that seems to be more indicative of the fact that uh, they're both kind of coming around to, to understanding each other a little bit better. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it's said a couple of times by Bo and uh, by Bo-Katan, and um, she says it at first almost in a mocking way right. to him, that way. but later on it was more of a term of respect at right. that point. You know, it's, so it's um, you could tell that they again, as I mentioned just a little bit ago, um, that they appreciated what the, the skills that they had both 
had, what they both shown off, that they both have these abilities and they both can be helpful to uh, each other in going forward. You know, even though obviously Bo-Katan is a, a child of Mandalore itself, she is from a, a true Mandalorian and Din is not. Um, she respected that his abilities and the fact that he could be, uh, you know, basically a, a, a Mandalorian and could right. fight alongside her at any at any moment yep. as needed. Yep. And I mean, she certainly was trying to encourage him to uh, to come with her and to stay. But, uh, you know, she also respected the fact that he had this greater mission to take the child uh, to a member of the Jedi Order. Uh, she gives him direction on where he can go to find Ahsoka Tano, which, again, uh, the city name didn't have much meaning to me. Um, I believe it was Kaladin, um, but they referred to the forest planet of Corvus, which I thought was a, a funny choice for a name because that is essentially the ship um, in in the uh, single player mode of Battlefront Two that the um, members of Inferno Squadron kind of fly around in. So that's another name that you know people who are deeply entrenched in Star Wars are going to pick up. Um, that's probably going to fly over a lot of other people's heads, but uh, you know that uh, that leads us back to uh having to go retrieve the child and and set off on this mission to go track down Ahsoka Tano and shockingly uh the child is uh giving frog lady and frog man's tadpole <laughs> a bath uh and has not eaten apparently anything well i mean his father did told him to behave himself and so he did that's been I so wonder- effective before <laughs> Exactly. Uh, you know, I, I figure it must have been something to me. It takes on like, look, I see these eggs as just eggs. You know, it's like if you eat an egg yeah. and you look at a baby chicken, um, you're probably, you know, a chicken egg versus a, a baby chicken. You're probably you, you know, an egg. I'm going to crack an egg. I'm going to yeah. eat it. I scramble it up. I'm going to eat it. I'm not going to you know, do that to the little baby chicken. Um, maybe that is what, <laughs> that's what the child don't was tell that to all the frogs he, sho- he shoved in his mouth in this episode, in this series. But no, I get what you're saying. I mean, uh, I thought, you know, more, uh, more amusing than even that was the fact that when he does go back to the razor crest, this thing has been cobbled together in the most, I mean, again, it looks like a tackle box instead of, uh, instead of a ship. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) So uh, that is where we are left for uh, this particular episode of The Mandalorian. I I think it's probably going to be a few episodes uh, before we get to Ahsoka. I feel like there's probably going to be, you know, some things that happen to him on the way there. I don't, I'm hoping that it's not episode eight before uh, she gets revealed, but uh, we will see. We will see if uh, he actually is going to leave the child with Ahsoka. Um, I don't know that she is someone who I would consider to really be in a situation to, uh, to be looking after a youngling. Yeah. Um, who knows what the situation is right now with her. Um, and you know, we know where we left off in the star Wars timeline with her after star Wars rebels, which was a very similar period of time to this. Um, but we don't know. I mean, this is obviously a couple years later. Um, what has happened, what has progressed during that time, is she still off on her quest along with Sabine to, you know, what she was trying to accomplish at that point? Don't know. Has it been accomplished at that point? Don't know. Uh, but we are, it is going to be fun to find out uh, exactly where they are. I agree with you. I think we're probably going to have at least some sort of you know, journey episode in the next one as pieces gradually keep falling off of the... Uh, the razor crest as he flies for the, to, uh, you know, the Corvus or uh, whatever it is. But um, 
Uh, I'm excited for when we get to that. I'm, I'm, I've enjoyed every episode so far. Some yeah. have called that this episode is a filler episode. I thought it was important and I thought it was very good. And, yeah. and I, I, I even episodes in season one that people would say were filler episodes. I think that they come back into play at some point down the line. I, I don't, I don't think Favreau and Filoni in uh, as few episodes as they're trying to play this out and is short of some of these episodes are that they, what may seem like filler to begin with doesn't end up being that way when we get down the road at some point. Yeah. There's almost always some nuggets from those episodes that, that play into uh, larger plot points later on in the season. So I would fully expect that as well. Um, kind of the very last thing we see in this episode is as he's getting ready to, to jump to hyperspace and, and, and he makes the jump. Uh, there's a piece of the ship that falls off and goes floating through space. That's a complete callback for me to Serenity, um, the movie that was based on the the short-lived show Firefly on uh, Sci-Fi Channel. Um, so again, uh, all these little things that you can totally get a laugh out of, even if you're not a hardcore Star Wars fan, but if you're into that genre in general and, and you pick up some of those things, uh, the aliens references, the serenity references, you know, all these things, um, kind of add to, to my enjoyment of watching the series. So, uh, I think we will use that as the stopping point for our discussion on the Mandalorian. I do want to take a few moments to talk about, um, galaxy's edge and and uh, i was able to pick up a legacy lightsaber at star wars galaxy's edge um i don't know if you want to stick around for that tom or sure i mean i'd like like to hear you talk about it (laughs) well no i mean and and the reason that uh, i think you'll you'll be a good addition to the conversation is uh, we both have purchased lightsabers from uh, companies outside of disney uh in the past um And my experience with, you know, the Disney lightsabers that have been produced in the past have typically been more for children, uh, kind of lower price points. There have been some Hasbro FX sabers and things like that that have been produced more for the adults. But, uh, you know, within the the realm of like really high quality, uh, accurate lightsabers, you've got companies like Saber Forge and Ultra Sabers, and uh, we've both purchased lightsabers from, from them in the past. Now, with the advent of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, and I've already done one review on the Savi's Workshop, uh, you know, lightsaber build, um, where you can swap out the kyber crystals, etc. But this is my first, uh, as I was down in Disney here the last couple of weeks, and we did go to Galaxy's Edge a number of times, I had the opportunity to finally pick up the Luke Skywalker replica uh, legacy lightsaber at Doc Ounder's Den of Antiquities. And one of the things that I noticed right away um, when I picked this up is unlike a lot of the lightsabers that I've held in the past from the lower end companies, you know, even the, even the FX sabers from Hasbro is that this just feels solid. It is very similar to what, what I have purchased from Saber Forge in the past. It is clearly high quality. It is made with, um, you know, real good quality aluminum. Um, all of the screen accuracy is there that you would expect. And, uh, you know, while it doesn't have like an internal power source that's rechargeable, uh, it does run on AA batteries. It is something that you could put on your shelf and people are going to see that as an absolute screen accurate replica lightsaber. Um, and that's, uh, you know, definitely something that I've been looking for, uh, at, at Disney for quite some time and for them to have produced that, uh, this one has been hard to find. I've been looking for it for the better part of the last 
nine months uh, because it's one that typically has not been in stock. But uh, this is the the lightsaber that basically is the saber that we see Luke wielding in in uh, Empire Strikes Back, and again that we see Rey wielding within Force Awakens. Uh, it is not something you're going to be able to duel with uh, like you would maybe a lightsaber from Ultra Sabers or Saber Forge. Um, but, you know, it's definitely a, a better showpiece uh, for your collection at home. And, uh, you know, Tom, I know you've had an opportunity uh, in your visits to Galaxy's Edge to go into Doc Ondar's and see those lightsabers that they offer. And um, they certainly have a, a pretty good array that is growing daily. Um, you know, what's what's your impression, Ben, of the legacy lightsabers that they offer? I think every time I go in there, they look uh, screen accurate to me. Now I've been gone through them and, and pick them up to actually give them a feel to yeah. see, you know, how, how, how sturdy they are, what their weight is like, you know. Um, but uh, every time I look at them, I, I think so many of them look so spectacular and I want to own so many of them, yeah. but I can't afford it. <laughs> now, uh, you've done Savvy's, so I know that's a totally different thing. It's a different experience. Um, obviously this is, this is a showpiece that is something you're there to create and probably have some fun with. It's more of an toy. How would you compare it? I mean, like if, if you were to have somebody say, look, I want a lightsaber, what should I do? Should I go and get one of these legacy lightsabers or should I go to Sabi's workshop and go through the whole experience? Um, what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's, they're, they're very, they're very different, uh, things. They're very different experiences. Um, I, I definitely think that if you, part of what you're paying for at Savi's workshop, um, and the price for Savi's is, uh, like one ninety nine, ninety nine plus tax. Um, but it's all inclusive. You get your lightsaber, you get the blade, you get uh, a bag, a sheath, uh, that it goes in for travel. And these things are things that you can bring home with you on your flight. Um, they're TSA approved. Uh, so there were no issues with that. Um, as you mentioned, the Savi's workshop is definitely as much about the experience as it is about what you walk out of there with. And I think that people who are not like, big lightsaber collectors are going to go into Savi's and they're going to build their lightsaber and they're going to love it. And you know, it feels heavy. Um, it's what you'd expect. They have the advantage of being able to, um, you know, kind of take the lightsaber apart and swap out the Kyber crystal with other Kyber crystals you can buy in Doc Ondar's to change the color of the blade. Um, and those also interact with the holocrons that they sell in Doc Ondar's to, you know, give messages from different Jedi. Um, so there is, you know, a bigger experience that you can have per se with that lightsaber, but the experience of building that lightsaber itself is, is a huge part of it. And Disney does a great job of putting on a, about a 15, 20 minute show, um, where you build these lightsabers and everyone that I have heard of that has gone and done the Savi's experience. And certainly my son, uh, experienced it as well. I got to experience it along with him. Uh, it was totally worth the money and the lightsaber that he got is definitely something that he can display and, and have a lot of fun with. For me, uh, as someone who has collected a number of other, uh, lightsabers, not necessarily things from films, um, you know, but, but quality display pieces. I like the legacy sabers a little bit more. The Savi's lightsabers feel a little bit big in your hand because they're being built around this, this core component that you can swap out the Kyber crystal in. Um, you can't do that with these legacy lightsabers, but 
they're they're much more true to what I have uh, experienced with the other the high quality lightsabers I purchased. So, um, you know, for me, I like the legacy sabers more. There are some of the legacy sabers, um, the Ahsoka Tano um, Star Wars Rebels version, like the samurai type hilts. Uh, to me, don't feel as good as as the Skywalker saber that I got. They don't feel like they're metal. They feel more plastic. I know that the Jedi Temple Guard uh, lightsabers that they have in in uh, Doc Ondar's also kind of look and feel a little bit more like plastic than a metal hilt. But any of the the big name, the Vader, the Luke Skywalker, uh, both the uh, episode four and five, and then the return of the Jedi version of Luke Skywalker saber all feel, um, you know, exactly like you would expect a lightsaber to feel in your hand, the Obi-Wan saber, uh, and some of those others that are clearly more of this aluminum body. Uh, they've got great weight to them and, and they've got some wonderful display stands that you can purchase and, uh, and really, you know, put together a nice collection. So for me, I'm, I'm leaning more toward the legacy sabers. Um, but I don't think that, uh, you know, if you're interested in doing the Savi's workshop and you have not had that experience at least once, I would highly recommend it if for no other reason than just than having that experience. Yeah, still hoping to do that sometime, just trying to scratch up the money yep. uh, to be able to do that. Now, you mentioned the Ahsoka uh, lightsabers that were from Rebels. I, I know that you've seen the, uh, the the newer version, or I guess technically it's the older version, right. the, the Clone War. <laughs> Yeah. And you like them a little bit more, right? Yeah, those actually just came out uh, just before the first time I visited uh, Galaxy's Edge on this trip. And they are, um, there's definitely one that's more of the traditional lightsaber length. There's one that's more the Shoto or the offhand lightsaber length. Um, and you can purchase the two different length blades. Um, I believe the sabers together, uh, for, for reference, the Skywalker lightsaber that I purchased while I was down there, it was $129.99 for the saber itself. You don't get any discounts on that um, if you're an annual pass holder, but if you buy accessories for it, you do get those discounts. So if you buy blades, which I, I think the blade was about $50, you do get a discount on that. The sheath, you know, the the carry bag, um, you do get a discount on that, the stands, etc. So the thing with, uh, you know, if I were to go and, and my plan is to potentially purchase these Ahsoka Tano um, Clone Wars uh, lightsabers that come as a pair, those are $199.99 for the pair. Um, they do come in a, in a box just like the Skywalker Saber did but it holds both of them. Um, and I can use the blade that I have for my Skywalker saber in one of those Ahsoka Tano sabers, uh, if I want to. So again, if you're just displaying the hill, you don't need to worry about the blade. If you want to really get the full experience, definitely you'll want to get the blades as well. Um, but they were, uh, they were, again, I, I held both of them. They were, they felt incredibly solid, uh, well-made, they have the advantage of actually changing color between green and blue, which is a new feature that they have not previously offered on their legacy sabers. So that was pretty cool. Um, and again, I mean, you know, they're, they're exactly the quality that I would be looking for to display along the other side of the other sabers that I currently have. Awesome. Yeah. I'm very jealous jealous of all your sabers, but, uh, definitely jealous of that, uh, Luke legacy saber and, uh, the, <laughs> You get those Ahsoka Tano sabers. I'm going to be completely green with envy for sure. <laughs> or blue, depending on which color. <laughs> yes. Button you hit. Exactly. So, yeah, awesome. I appreciate you sticking around for that conversation, Tom. Why don't you let everyone know where they can find you and uh, Michelle on the Hyperion Adventures podcast? 
Thank you, Rob. As I have said, it's always fun to be Jedi Temple Archives podcast with you. And if you want to find our podcast, the one that I do with my wife, it's called the Hyperion Adventures podcast. And you can get us pretty much everywhere you get podcasts. However, the very best place to find us is on our own website, HyperionAdventuresPodcast.com. Uh, we also do have a YouTube channel, which we pretty much mostly just put out uh, videos of our podcast. But there may be, as we eventually get to get to some of the Disney parks and so forth, um, putting some out some other videos as well. But you can find us there by just doing a search for Hyperion Adventures Podcast and hitting subscribe. And if you want to follow us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Hyperion Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest at Hyperion Adventures Podcast. Yeah, and definitely check them out. Not only do they talk Disney, but uh, as you said, they talk Star Wars, they talk Marvel, they talk all things related to Disney, uh, and they do a great job. Always a lot of fun to listen to. They interact with uh, both myself and uh, with Charles and Pat over at Conversations just as much as they uh, interact with other Disney-related podcasts, um, and there's a wonderful community of them as well. So uh, if you want to find us here at the Jedi Temple Archives podcast, clearly you've already found us, but uh, to find us more easily, you can check us out at jtapass.com. You can reach us on our email at jtapodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media currently just on Twitter at JTA Podcast. So uh, definitely reach out if you have anything you'd like to discuss Star Wars related. Uh, if you have any thoughts about where the Mandalorian may be going in the rest of season two, uh, or if you have any questions about Star Wars at the Disney parks, always happy to talk about that. And we will look forward to having those conversations down the road. Um, we are just coming into the holiday season, so uh, hopefully all of you have a safe and happy Thanksgiving next week, and may the Force be with you.